2 Samuel chapter 9, it feels like I should head this off by saying uh, the names of this story, and it's a true story, but the names of this story have been changed to protect the identity of the guilty. This story is being told this morning to help you realize that it's your story. Uh, it's, it's a vicarious experience of the grace of God, but this is the grace of a human being shared towards someone else. But this is your story, and I want you to hear it in a different way because you're living it through an Old Testament character that we don't, don't talk about all that often. This guy is a, a crippled man. He's living in a rudimentary makeshift wheelchair, living in a small borrowed cabin out in the middle of nowhere. It's a miserable existence miles away from the nearest person. It's a, an area called Low Debar, a very uncreative name for a village. And it simply means no pasture land. Everybody, if you survived back then, grew something off the land and you used it to live and then sold the rest of it to have any kind of money. But when you had no pasture land, it means you had no way of making a living for yourself. You're living in total poverty. And it's kind of like being in the outskirts somewhere of Alaska, a very obscure place. When you move to Alaska, people start asking you, what are you running from? And that's exactly what this crippled man was doing in Low Debar. He found a place no one would want to live in and no one would actually accidentally come to. He wanted to be here as a hideout because he was on the run. He was a person who could have a right to the throne, who could pose a threat to the next king, but he was crippled. He was not gonna do that, and yet he was in danger. He's bitter and he's resentful from the only memory he has of any better days. Those memories are old, they're getting dusty, and they're starting to fade in his mind, but he still remembers it. He was in line, potentially, to be the next king. He had the freedom to move around in the palace. He was a grandson of the first king of Israel. He was the envy of other kids in this big city of the, of the, of the area. He had free reign to do whatever he wanted to. He ate like a royalty, and he was treated like it too. And what he now knows is that he could be in that spot even now. He maybe should be in that spot right now, but he's not. All those memories are from way back there in childhood, and they're long gone. And now he has to live the rest of his life off those old memories that are fading away. You wouldn't be able to tell it now, but he's from a celebrity family. His dad was the first king, his grandfather was the first king of Israel, a head taller than everybody else, and a great hero, at least at first, when he became king. But he suddenly decided he was going to go AWOL on God, and he went crossways with God, and God decided to strip the kingdom from him and give him to somebody else, and everybody knew who it was. It was David. But Saul's son was this man's, this wanted man's, best friend. King Saul decided he's going to pull out all the stops. He's going to put an APB out on David and he's going to find him and he's going to hunt him down. And that became his number one thing. I'm going to hunt David down to protect the throne. But he couldn't. Before he got a chance to ever get to David, the Philistines got to him. Saul and a couple of his sons died on Mount Gilboa fighting the Philistines. And now he was gone. 
And you know what happens when a new king takes the throne? You hunt down all the relatives of the previous king. That's what you always did in the ancient world. A new dynasty would take over, and if any, in case anyone ever thought of rising up and doing a coup against the, the, the new king, he would just take out the whole family of the old king and just kill them all. And so what he knew is he was a wanted man in the land, someone that the new king would want to eliminate. So when Saul died on Mount Gilboa with his two sons, there was an alarm that went off in the palace of the king. The nanny heard it. She knew what to do. She grabbed this man, this grandson of the king, who was very young at the time. She grabbed him and started running for safety to protect him from whoever would take over after that. And as she was running, she fell and fell on him, broke both of his legs, and couldn't, didn't have the time to set the bones. And so he was crippled in both feet for the rest of his life. And now he, here he is a few years later in the middle of low D-bar, no pasture land, terrified at ever being discovered as a competitor to the throne. And now he's eking out an existence, barely surviving. He's powerless in case he ever wanted to actually take the throne. He's an enemy of the king, which means everybody is on the lookout for him. And he's just simply quietly living out his existence in the middle of nowhere where no one would want to find him. He did get married, he had children, but talk of that past, talk about who he was and who he should be is all silenced as he ekes out his existence, miserable but safe. You ever wonder what life on the run would be like? Life where you were wanted by the authorities, you could never really rest, never really feel safe. Don and Janet are two people in New Jersey who understood this. They had a very uh, reckless life as teenagers. They sowed their wild oats. They did their stuff. They got all sorts of warrants for their arrest. They don't even know what they all were because they weren't sober for all of it. But they know that there's a lot of warrants for their arrest on their record. And so they kind of live their lives on the outskirts. They don't do anything uh, that would have people check out their background check. They don't do anything to be out front and center, out in public. They get private jobs out on the side where they get paid by cash because no one needs to know what they've done. They have no idea what all trouble they may be in, but they know, they know that they're wanted. And so they live outside kind of obscurely eking out their existence too. There's another man, a policeman in South Africa who feels this way too. During the lawless days of the past of apartheid in South Africa, he was a police officer and he had this position of power and those people often abused that power. He went to one house and he took this 18 year old boy and he killed him. He put his body on a barbecue, a barbecuer and he burned it in front of his family. Eight years later, he returns to that same house and he seizes this boy's father. And while making the wife watch, he pours gasoline on the man and lights him up. That's part of that out of control atmosphere of apartheid in South Africa a few years ago. He regrets it, he's ashamed of it, but Nelson Mandela had recently been released, became president, and he vowed for justice. He vowed for law and order and for healing. And this police officer knew what this meant. And so he dodged all authority and he stayed outside in lonely places. There's another person 
for whom these words that we've used to describe this guy, powerless, enemy of the king, all that stuff, these words are used to describe another person, maybe familiar to you. And here's some, here's some passage. You who were alienated, that means an enemy, alienated and hostile, you were against him in your mind, doing evil deeds. It's Colossians chapter one. Does that ring a bell for anyone who this is? Well, let me get a little further. Maybe you'll see. Next one. You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, crippled, Christ died for the ungodly. We were crippled. We were ungodly. Next screen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, enemies like the rest of mankind. Do you have any idea who I've just described? Does that ring a bell with anybody? It's you, powerless, enemy of God, worthy of death, kind of on death row and you didn't know it. Here's the description if you put them all together. Alienated, hostile, powerless. That's all of us. Uh, we're enemies of God who has, we have earned his wrath. That's every human being. Now for some of you, this is a past experience. This is not who you are now. But listen, what makes, amazing, what makes grace amazing is that you remember who you once were. This was you. You were on death row just waiting for the day to meet God and to have him dole out what you deserve. And for some of you who've never responded to the gospel, this is you. This is your status right now. Facebook status before God is this right here. You understand it, you're powerless, you can't do anything to fix it, you are in a mess, you're an enemy of God, and he's got his sights on you, and it's just a matter of time. That's us, that's you, that's me, that's all of humanity. That's where the crippled guy was. That's where we all either are or were. But we're gonna take a trip back in time and see where the seeds of fixing this mess are. In the early days when Saul, this crippled man's grandfather, had pulled out all the stops and wanted to kill David. David wasn't yet sure just how serious Saul was. And so he had Jonathan, his best friend, Saul's son. He had him figure out, is this really a serious threat? And he found out that yes, it was. They met out in the middle of nowhere where no one would find him and no one could hear the conversation. And here's what Jonathan told him. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, when all this is over, he's saying, if I'm still alive, show me the, this is the word steadfast love. It's a, it's a Hebrew word called chesed, which piles in kindness and loving kindness and compassion and mercy and love and grace all together. And he says, when, when all your enemies are gone, when God has put them all away, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love also from my house, my family forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies from David, from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant 
with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Out there in the middle of nowhere with nobody to bear witness, nobody to sign the bottom line, no one to hold anyone to account for any bit of this covenant, Jonathan says to him, I'm going to help you and and God's going to cut off all your enemies and you're going to be king. And when you get there, I want you to show steadfast love to my family. It's going to happen. And I want you right now to make an agreement with me. And David does. But again, there's nobody there to hear it or bear witness or to be holding them in compliance to it. That happened, 1 Samuel chapter 20. And David did come out on top. Saul died. David took the throne. He was victorious in his battles. He secured a peaceful Israel. The conflicts were finally over. The Philistines were at bay. Jerusalem is his city. The Ark of the Covenant is sitting there. And then one day, one day, now that the kingdom is at peace, David begins to ask questions. His advisors around him got fidgety. They started getting very uncomfortable. They started with shifty eyes toward each other, wondering what is David wanting to do? David starts asking information. Is there anyone still left from the house of Saul? Does Saul have any relatives still left? And they knew what this meant. What he was wanting to do is hunt down all the rest of them and have this final, you know, obliteration of the previous dynasty. But that's not what David was wanting. I'm looking for someone still of the household of Saul. They bring in one of Saul's old servants. His name was Ziba. And they say to Ziba, is is there anybody still left from the house of Saul? And he said, there is still one. Let me tell you about him. Never says his name. Never says, this is his name. All it says is three things. Ziba looks at him and he says, there is a son of Jonathan, which is even better than just a general relative of Saul. It's It's a son of your best friend. Great. Second, he's a crippled man. And that word crippled appears all the way through the story, pressed as if to tell David, you need not worry about him posing a threat to you. He's powerless. He's a cripple. And third, he lives in Lodibar. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's out there lost, and there's no reason to find him. Just leave him alone. But they don't know what David's doing. David is not going after him to hunt him down and to eliminate the previous dynasty. No, it's not vengeance. This is about an opportunity to show that kessed, to honor that covenant. And nobody remembers it. Nobody's aware of it. Nobody even knows it exists, but he's going to honor the covenant anyway. David is not looking to eliminate a threat. He's looking to honor a relative of his dear friend who's gone, his late best friend. And so the scene changes down in Lodi Bar is a crippled man in a makeshift wheelchair eating oatmeal. That's just a guess. He's eating oatmeal at the table, and he hears a knock at the door, and he opens up the door, and there's all the king's horses and all the king's men standing there saying to him, you are wanted at the palace of the king. Now, that sounds like an honor thing, but for him, who's been in hiding as an enemy of the king for years, this is what he's always dreaded. This feels more like a funeral procession than a parade of honor, and he goes, but he has no choice. They load him up, they take him into the capital city, they make him in, take him into the palace of the king, and they introduce him to King David, and finally, for the first time, somebody says his name. 
David wants to set him at ease. Mephibosheth, he says, do not be afraid. I'm going to surely show you chesed for the sake of your father. I will restore to you all the lands that belong to your grandfather, King Saul, and you're going to always have a place at my table. I'm going to adopt you into my family. He was speechless. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And just like that, a promise is kept. A promise is fulfilled. Saul's servant Ziba was in charge of all the details, and he carried him out perfectly. And all of a sudden, he could leave behind the life and the mentality of a powerless, crippled enemy of the king and now live as a child of privileged king. What would that be like? Winning the lottery? Some of you, I know, when there's a wedding in the royal family of England, you will You'll get up at three in the morning to watch it. You'll turn, turn it, you'll tune into it, and you, and, you, and you dream of that. Imagine you're just a nobody in the United States, and suddenly you're a part of the royal family, right? What would that feel like? Don and, Jan, uh, Don and Janet at New Jersey, they kind of found out about this. There was a program called Operation Safe Surrender. They read about it. They were a little skeptical, but they started seeing people do this. You, you turn yourself in. You've got all these outstanding warrants for something less than murder, and, and you, turn in, you turn them all in. You come in, you just turn yourself in, and they translate them. Instead of, instead of making you pay them or serve time, they turn them to community service, and you get to pay off that, that crime that you've committed, and you get to have it expunged, and it's completely off your record. And they started doing this at, at police stations, but nobody would come in because it sounded like a trick. And so they went to local churches and said, let us set up in local churches. The Department of Justice would come into a church and say, it's operate, Operation Safe Surrender Day, and all these people would come in and bring their past with them. Bring that past that they're ashamed of and they don't even know all the details of. Bring that past in and we'll trade it off for time served and serving the community. And you get to walk away free. Don and Janet did that, and suddenly this fear of their past being found out was eliminated, and they got to march on to a completely different future. And same thing with this police officer in South Africa. Mandela decided, in one of the most brilliant strokes in history, to set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And what they decided to do is instead of charging people or, or trying to convict them of their crimes, they said, if you will just come to a hearing and face the people that you've hurt the most and tell the absolute truth of what all you've done, you can never receive a penalty for it. You just tell the truth in front of those you've hurt. The police officer who abused his power showed up and took advantage he came forward and he confessed what he had done to the 18-year-old boy and to his father a few years later. As part of the process, the mother of the boy got to be there. The wife of the husband got to be there to look him in the eye and respond to him. And when he was through with all his grisly details of what he had done, the judge asked her in his presence, what do you want from this man? And she was ready with an answer. Gather the ashes of my husband that remain and give him a decent burial. And the man nodded. These are all in court records. You could read them. 
You took my family away. I have a lot of love to give as a mother. So two days a month, I want you to come to my house, and I'm going to be a mother to you. And I want you to know God forgives you, and so do I. And I ask that you come and embrace me. The man didn't do it because he couldn't. As he stood up from the witness stand and moved toward her, he fainted. I can sort of understand a feeling like that with the dread and barrier just all over your shoulders of the things that you've done, and suddenly just total grace is received. That weight falls off of you, and you're so used to carrying it, you just fall over from it. You remember watching Botham Jean's whole trial, and you see that brother extend that forgiveness to the police officer. It's, it was unlike anything you could see before. Some debated, can he do that, or should he do that? He did that. And it was one of the most unbelievable things to witness. And that's what it was in a court that day. Walk away free when you came so burdened with guilt. We shouldn't be strangers to this kind of amazing grace either. On death row, powerless enemies of God, facing his wrath. These verses that we read earlier are finished in the next few screens. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil behaviors, he has now reconciled you by his body of flesh, by his death, not yours, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You walk in guilty, knowing exactly what you deserve, and because he died for you, you walk out blameless and holy and totally reunited with the Creator. What kind of weird deal is that? Next screen. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, crippled, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And since we have now been justified, sins are gone by his blood, how much more will be saved by God's wrath through him, from God's wrath through him. Next screen, verse four. After all these things you were dead, but being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And so he can say with finality in this one small verse, next one, wages of sin, what you deserve is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You could walk in. You could walk in as guilty as anything, knowing exactly what you deserve and being burdened by the knowledge of that and walk out as if nothing ever happened, totally freely forgiven by God. It's called grace. It's what Mephibosheth experienced that day, going from nothing to a place in the palace for the rest of his life. It is not a stretch to say that we are Mephibosheth. We are him. How does that happen? He wanted to know that too. Next screen. And so David says to him, and Mephibosheth, you know, who am I? I will show you kindness for the sake of your father. It wasn't about Mephibosheth at all. It was about his father and his relationship to the king. 
And can I tell you that you have amazing privileges and possibilities granted to you by God through grace. And for you, it's this way too. Next screen. It's not about you. It's about your father and the king. It's always about that dynamic. God making this arrangement, Jesus providing it through the sacrifice he made as Lord of Lords. And because of that, together, you have this amazing privilege and opportunity to be made right with God through no effort of your own. You do respond, you do believe it and confess it. You are immersed, but it's not an action that you do. Next screen. And here's the response Mephibosheth gives. What's your servant? You should notice me. Every one of us this morning should walk out of here saying we're his servants. Given what he's done for us, we say we are your servants. Who are we? You should treat us like this. Next screen. And so here's the story of Mephibosheth as he is with, cr with crutches approaching the king. And it's the story of you, no less. It's exactly the same story. How does that happen? Because of a king and because of his father. Last screen. And so he says, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at David's table like one of the king's sons. And he ate there every day for the rest of his life. I want you to picture this next one. This is like a banquet hall. Isaiah does describe heaven as this wonderful, wonderful banquet table with all tasty foods on it. That is one image we could have of heaven. I want you to imagine that, that the, there's this table set kind of like Hogwarts, if you've ever seen Harry Potter. And it's got all this food you could possibly want on it, and there's place settings all along the way, and God invites everybody. God longs for everybody to be at this table. And a lot of people will think, well, there's some people who belong at the table. They, they look at people like Risa and Wesley, and they look at people like Danny, and they look at elders, and they look at elders' wives, and they, oh, they, they belong at that table. Look at that life. It's almost like if anybody deserves heaven, they do. No, they don't. Not one of us does. Not one of us deserves a place at the table. You get that? Not one of us deserves it. But we are all offered it. And it's not because of the life that we live. It's not because of how well we performed. It's because of our Father and the King. They've arranged it to where we can have this wonderful experience. And so David, every day as he sits at the king's table, there's all sorts of people sitting around it. As Chuck Swindoll gives this wonderful image of this. There's all these people who obviously uh, seem to fit at the place. You have Solomon, the wise son of David. You have Absalom, the most handsome, long-haired son of David. You have Bathsheba, and you have his beautiful daughter, Amnon. You have all these wonderful people that look like royalty sitting around the table, and you're like, yeah, it looks like they belong there. That's not a place where I belong. Wrong. Because you know who else has a place at the table? This crippled man from Lodibar, he has the place at the table because of his father and the king. God wants you at that table, and he doesn't make you earn it because he knows you can't. Because of his father and because of our king, he's offered us this place. Please make sure you've got a spot reserved, a place setting with your name tag on it.
when you get there. And there's no reason not to because it's given to you. You can go from low D-bar in a borrowed cabin as an enemy of the king to having a place every day at his table. Why pass that up? If you've never responded to the gospel this morning, you have another chance. Because of your father who made a covenant with you, because of your king who died for you, you have a place. Say his name with your lips. Confess his name as Lord. Be immersed in the waters of baptism. Rise to walk a new life and know that your place is already set for you for when that time comes. There's any way we can we can urge you into it, we would do it as we stand and as we sing.